on February 9, 1999, 15-year-old sophomore Ashley Olette was dropped off at a friend's home for a sleepover in Saco, Maine. Just before 4 a.m. the next day, Ashley was found dead in the middle of a busy road. While she didn't have any visible injuries, an autopsy concluded that she'd been strangled. The state police conducted a thorough investigation of Ashley's murder. Unfortunately, they were never able to gather enough evidence to file charges. It's been more than 24 years since Ashley's murder, and authorities are still pursuing the people responsible. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. Each week I'll be covering unsolved cases in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. If you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. All right, so a little bit of the backstory on this case regarding Ashley Ouellette before we dive into it. Uh, This is not the first time I've heard of Ashley's case. In fact, when Haley sent it over to me as one of the case submissions, I immediately recognized it um, from a case that we were considering doing on Breaking Homicide. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Breaking Homicide, I'm not offended. Uh, it was a show that I did for two years on Investigation Discovery where I, I traveled the country uh, looking at unsolved cases. And Ashley's case was one of the ones that we were considering for season two. Now, the reason we didn't cover it was pretty interesting. There's a, there's a multitude of things that go into considering whether or not to cover a case. And a lot of them are out of your control. But with Ashley's case, I remember specifically there's a lot of people that are involved in the decision-making process And as we got around and talked about Ashley's case, the big thing for a lot of the people who are on the TV side of things were like, hey, seems pretty obvious what happened here. How do we make an hour show out of it? Like, clearly, this young woman was murdered, and it doesn't really seem like it's a whodunit. It's just a matter of not having enough to pursue charges right now. And if they haven't pursued charges yet, is that because... They just don't have anything that they can go off of. And and what value could could I and the team bring to that case? Is there, are there other cases that we could maybe do more? And unfortunately, that's what we decided. We decided to go with other cases that we felt like we could have more of an impact on. But it, it doesn't mean that uh, we didn't want to do this case. I would do every single one if I could. But when you're making those tough decisions, those are some of the considerations that come into play when you're doing it for television. Ashley's case always was in the back of my mind. And in fact, it's one of the cases I thought about when I decided to start Detective Perspective. Here, we're not restricted by those requirements that you have with a television show. And frankly, I can cover whatever cases I want, regardless of how long or short they may be. Um, So I'm glad we're getting back to this. I'm glad we're putting it out there. I think that you will find as as we dive into this investigation that our original assessment of it, as far as there not being a ton of different scenarios that could have played out here and is really only like one or two paths 
I think most of you are going to agree with that, but I'm looking forward to covering it and uh, getting your opinions on it. So make sure as we're going through it, you weigh down in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on a, an audio platform, leave a rating and, and leave a comment there. I, I try to read every single one of them on both platforms. One more thing before we dive into the case. We're only on episode nine here. And I just wanted to tell you guys that we're already starting to receive tips about certain cases. Um, I actually received one today about one of the cases we covered here on Detective Perspective. So if it's not already obvious to all of you, if you come forward with information and, and you want to remain anonymous, you can always contact our email, which is cases at detectiveperspectivepod.com and contact us that way. Obviously, we're going to have some idea of who you are, but I can assure you that that name will remain with us if you want it to. And we'll never pass along information unless we have your permission, but keep them coming. That's what this show's about. We're not just covering these cases for the sake of covering them. We're trying to make a difference. And the reality is it, it, it might not always happen, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do our best to push these cases forward. And even if we're only successful in one or two of them, that's more than when we started. And that's the goal here. And I appreciate all of you really taking a vested interest in these cases and supporting the families that we talk about each week. And also, if you're from the area, if you have information, feeling comfortable enough to contact me or the team and let us know what you have because you never know what that information will do for the overall case. All right, I think that covers everything. Let's dive into it. Ashley Aaron Ouellette was born on March 29th, 1983. She and her younger sister were raised in Saco, a town around 20,000 people located just outside of Portland, Maine. Their parents, Bob and Lise, were pillars of the community. They owned a successful realty company, and served on multiple boards. Growing up, Ashley was known for being a warm, sincere, and caring person. She was also mature for her age and preferred to be around older kids. At age 13, Ashley started acting out like many teenagers do. She smoked cigarettes, drank alcohol, stayed out late, and spent a lot of time with older boys. Ashley's behavior escalated and she ran away from home. She stopped going to school and her parents couldn't find her for weeks. They believed someone was keeping her hidden, and they were right. After getting help from police, Ashley was located at the house of two older classmates named Daniel and Stephen Sanborn. Once Ashley was back home, Bob and Lise did what they could to guide her in a better direction. They took her to counseling and enrolled her in an alternative education program at Thornton Academy. By February of 1999, Ashley's behavior had improved a lot. She was towing the line at home and was doing well in school. Because of this, her parents began to relax the rules a little bit. On Tuesday, February 9th, Ashley asked to attend a sleepover at her friend Aaliyah's house in Saco. Even though it was a school night, Ashley's parents thought she deserved a reward for her progress, so they agreed to let her go. Lee drove Ashley to Aaliyah's house, which was about a mile away from their home. She had no idea Aaliyah's parents were out of town and wouldn't be there to supervise. At around 10 p.m., Ashley called her mom from Aaliyah's house to say goodnight. Lise asked what they were up to, and Ashley said they were painting their nails. Ashley and Lise then shared their I love yous before ending the call. This was the last time Lise ever spoke to her daughter. Six hours later, just before 4 a.m., a man named Michael Lopes and his mother were driving down Pine Point Road in Saco. As they neared the Scarborough Marsh Nature Center, they saw a young woman's body lying in the middle of the road. Michael later told the Portland Press that the body was face down on the pavement aligned with the center lines. Her hands were beside her and her legs were straight out. He said it was, quote, almost like she was placed there. 
Michael's mom called 911 on a cell phone while he got out to help the young woman. He rolled her over and immediately noticed that she didn't have a pulse and her skin was blue. There were no bruises or scrapes on her body, just a small amount of blood around her nose and her mouth. She was dressed in a shirt, a sweatshirt, black leggings, and platform shoes. She also didn't have a coat, which was surprising as it was very cold outside. The young woman's body was still warm, so Michael started CPR and continued until paramedics showed up. Sadly, it was too late. Local detectives soon arrived at the scene to investigate. They checked the victim for identification, but there wasn't any. Although she didn't appear to have any visible injuries, her death was immediately treated as a homicide. The state police were called in to take over as they were better equipped to investigate. The first order of business was to identify the victim. They checked schools for absent students, reviewed missing persons reports, and spoke with people in the neighborhood. When that didn't work, detectives asked local television stations to broadcast a description of the body on the new news. The Portland Press-Herald reported that it wasn't long before several people called the police station to say the description matched 15-year-old Ashley Olette. At around 1.45 p.m., detectives called Ashley's parents. They had no idea anything was wrong. They were still under the impression that Ashley had been at school all morning. Detectives asked the Olettes to come into the station. Once there, detectives showed them a photograph of the body, which they identified as their daughter. Bob and Lise couldn't believe that Ashley was dead. It was a complete shock. They offered to put up a $10,000 reward, but detectives asked them to hold off while they continued investigating. That afternoon, an autopsy concluded that Ashley had died from manual strangulation. Aside from some blood on her nose and mouth, there were no other signs of injury. All of her jewelry was missing. She had small pieces of brown vegetation in her hair, and she had a light gravel-type dirt on her slacks. The medical examiner further determined that Ashley had, quote, sexual contact before her death. Now, I want to pause here and note that I'm saying sexual contact because that's how the police worded it. They've never come out and said that Ashley was raped or sexually assaulted. I have a couple ideas uh, why they could be saying this, but this is pure speculation on my part. Um, they could have found uh, signs of vaginal tearing or bleeding, which doesn't necessarily mean a rape or, or a sexual assault. It could mean a consensual encounter, but it does mean that she was sexually active recently. They also could have potentially found some ejaculate on her body somewhere where it was determined that within a relative amount of time, she had had sexual intercourse with someone who ejaculated during that interaction. Either way, this is extremely important because as we go through this timeline, you will see that there would be a window where Ashley could have been sexually active and there were only a few people there that it could have been with. Now, the Portland Press Herald reported that while the autopsy was being conducted, detectives interviewed multiple people in order to establish a timeline of the last few hours of Ashley's life. When speaking with the Olettes, detectives found out that Ashley had gone to her friend Aaliyah's house for a sleepover on February 9th and that she called her mom around 10 p.m. to say goodnight. That was the last time Bob and Lise heard from their daughter. Ashley's friends told detectives that shortly after Ashley got off the phone with her mom, a party started at Aaliyah's home. They drank alcohol and invited over multiple guys, including 16-year-old Daniel Sanborn and his 20-year-old friend, Jason Carney, who also goes by Jay. Not long after the party began, Ashley asked one of the guests, Edwin Hernandez, to drive her to another home in Saco. According to Edwin, he thought he was taking Ashley to her aunt's house so she could babysit in the morning. Little did he know, 
he was actually taking her to the home of 18-year-old Stephen Sanborn, the same home Ashley had run away to previously. Aaliyah told detectives that before leaving, Ashley said to her, quote, I want to go see Steve. When I get a buzz on, I get a crush on Steve. Now, just as a side note here, Ashley had a crush on Stephen for a very long time. Back in like 96 or 97, when Ashley was about 13 or 14 years old, she and 16-year-old Stephen had a sexual relationship. So this was not the first encounter between the two. At around 10.45 p.m., Edwin drove Ashley to the Sanborn home located at 50 Mast Hill Road, a remote and wooded area of Saco. Ashley knocked at the door, but she didn't get an answer. Ashley and Edwin then went to a gas station so that Ashley could use the payphone to call the Sanborn home. Ashley called and Stephen's friend, Chris Cody, answered. She asked to speak with Stephen, but he refused to come to the phone because he was sleeping and didn't want to talk. It's unclear what Ashley and Edwin did for the next couple of hours, but according to Edwin, at around 12.30 a.m., he drove Ashley back to the Sanborn home. He dropped her off and then went back to Aaliyah's. He told detectives he never saw Ashley again. Three and a half hours later, Ashley was found dead on Pine Point Road, five miles away from the Sanborn home. Based on everything that detectives knew so far, they decided to focus their efforts on figuring out what happened between 12.30 a.m. and 4 a.m. They asked Daniel and Stephen Sanborn, along with their parents, and Stephen's friend Chris Cody, to come in for questioning. Daniel told detectives that he had been at Aaliyah's party until around 11 p.m. He then went home and fell asleep. At 12.30 a.m., Ashley showed up and knocked on the rear door of the basement, where Stephen and Daniel's bedrooms were located. Daniel woke up and answered the door. Ashley asked if she could stay the night, and Daniel said they'd have to talk to his mother, Mariel. They went upstairs, and Ashley told Mariel that she had gotten into an argument with her parents, and they kicked her out, and she needed a place to stay. Mariel said that Ashley could stay on the couch in the basement. She grabbed her some bedding and then went back to bed. Daniel informed detectives that he last saw Ashley at approximately 12.45 a.m. when he gave her a soda. At that time, Ashley mentioned that the basement was too warm, so she planned on going upstairs to sleep on the living room couch. Daniel went to his room, fell asleep, and didn't hear anything all night. When he woke up the next morning, he noticed Ashley wasn't there and he assumed she had left during the night. He went to school in the morning and then returned home for lunch. Detectives immediately looked into Daniel's claim that he had gone to school that morning and found out that he was lying. He had been absent all day. Detectives confronted Daniel with this information, and he changed his story and said that he had slept in on Wednesday and then spent the afternoon with his friends at Old Orchard Beach. Now, it's unclear if detectives were able to corroborate this version of Daniel's story, but based on what I'm going to talk about here in a minute, I think the answer is probably no, that they weren't able to corroborate anything that Daniel had told them after they confronted him with this new information. Daniel's parents, Mariel and Earl, also spoke with detectives. The state police haven't revealed what Earl said in his statement, but we do know that Mariel told detectives that she allowed Ashley to stay the night after hearing her parents had kicked her out. She said she gave Ashley bedding, then went back to bed. Around 15 minutes later, she heard some noise. She got up to see what was going on and found Daniel getting a soda out of the fridge. Mariel asked him what he was doing and Daniel said he was getting Ashley something to drink. She then went back to bed and didn't hear anything for the rest of the night. When she woke up in the morning, Ashley wasn't in the house. Mariel didn't think much of it. She assumed that she had left during the night. Stephen and Chris told detectives that they were asleep when Ashley showed up, and they didn't see or hear her the entire night. Stephen further said that when he woke up in the morning, 
he saw Daniel's door was closed and assumed Ashley and Daniel were still in there sleeping. He explained that Daniel would keep his door closed whenever he had people staying the night. Stephen said that he then went to school and started hearing rumors about Ashley being dead. Now, I wanted to stop here for a second because Haley and I were talking as I was reviewing this script, and this area is a little confusing, but I'm assuming based on his statements, because these statements are coming from two different articles that Haley was able to find. What we're assuming is that when she called earlier in the night and spoke to Chris, he probably went into the room where Stephen was and said, hey, you know, that was Ashley on the phone. You know, she's coming over. And then before she actually got there, they, they both fell asleep. If you're to believe their version of what happened that night. Detectives told Ashley's parents about what the Sanborn family said happened that night. Lise had a difficult time believing that Ashley would leave the Sanborn home on her own in the middle of the night. Lise believes that if Ashley really wanted to leave the house that night, she would have called them or her uncle and asked them to come pick her up. She had done that in the past, even when she knew she would get in trouble. Now, listen, I'm never one to sit here and second guess what a parent thinks about their child, because obviously they spent the most time with them. They know them fairly well. But I would point out for the sake of objectivity here, Lise also didn't think that that Ashley was going to be having a party unsupervised at Aaliyah's house that evening. So kids will do things behind their parents' backs. That is the, that is the reality. So if we're looking at a situation here where Ashley had been on thin ice for a very long time and had very little leeway as far as what she could do, um, and then she finally is gaining the trust of her parents back, they're allowing her to sleep out. I do think it's reasonable to assume that if she was at the Sanborns' home and wanted to leave, that she wouldn't want to notify her parents or another family member because then that would break their trust again. Yeah, she'd be okay, but that would put her right back to square one. So although I'm not going to sit here and debate Lisa on this issue, I will say I think it is possible that if, if Ashley decided to leave the Sanborn home that night, she may have opted to walk as opposed to getting a ride by one of them because she didn't want to lose the freedom that she had just recently gained back. Now, while the Sanborns were being interviewed, detectives looked inside Daniel's vehicle and noticed dry grass on the floor of the car. It was similar to the grass found on Ashley's body. The car was immediately seized and sent for examination. Aside from the dry grass, investigators found a gold ring, a black blouse, fingernail particles, a scarf, and hair. Now, as far as what was found in the vehicle and the potential significance of it, uh, I'm going to leave that for the end when I talk about it in my perspective, but, but just make note of it for now. Now, based on all of this evidence so far, detectives were suspicious of Daniel, so they took his clothes and his jewelry and gathered samples of his hair, fingernails, and saliva. They also obtained a search warrant for the Sanborn home. In different parts of the house, detectives found a, quote, open condom and other signs of sexual activity. They collected various pieces of evidence like samples of the carpet, upholstery, a purple cord, a bedspread, jewelry, and a stained pillow. At the same time the Sanborn home was being searched, a group of officers went to Ashley's high school and asked students to come forward with any information they had regarding Ashley's murder. For the next few weeks, officers went to the school every day just in case a student wanted to talk. On February 13th, Ashley's funeral was held. According to the Journal Tribune, multiple detectives monitored the crowd and made themselves available to anyone who may have information. 
A little over a week later, Ashley's parents spoke to the Portland Press-Herald about their daughter. Bob addressed Ashley's behavior prior to her death by saying, quote, We tried to do everything we could to get her back on the right track. We thought that that part of her life was long gone. Obviously, it wasn't. Lise added that her and Bob's biggest regret was that Ashley wouldn't be able to fulfill her potential. She said, quote, Kids are kids. We all go through difficult phases. We all take different roads to get where we are going. I think she was just starting to realize that she was okay. She never got the chance to show that to someone. The Maine State Police gave an update stating that they were still interviewing people and working through all the evidence they collected so far. They wouldn't say if they had any suspects, however, they confirmed that Ashley was last seen alive at the Sanborn home. By mid-March, the police weren't making as much progress in the case as they were hoping for, so they agreed to let the Ouellettes offer a $10,000 reward. On March 18th, Bob, Lise, and multiple detectives went in front of all the students at Thornton Academy and announced the reward. Detectives told the students that they believed there were people in the crowd that had information that could help solve the case. They were hoping the reward would help bring those people forward. Now, real quick here, as I said earlier in this story, originally when the Olets offered to put up this $10,000 reward, detectives said, hey, hold off for a second. And now, obviously, they're deciding to do it. And I think this was good. I think this is the way it should be done because whenever there's money attached to it, you can have issues with a defense team who will say, you know, this witness um, only came forward because there was there was some monetary gain. That's why they're doing it. So if you can gain information from a witness without there being a reward attached to it, it's always better, right? So when they don't get the response they need that way, now they step it up a notch. Now they bring the money element into it and they put the pressure directly on people that they think may have answers. They didn't just put it out to the community. They went right to Ashley's school because they knew that if anybody knew what happened to her, it was one of the students in that room. She was at a party. She was hanging out with classmates later that evening. So if if anyone was going to slip up and say something that they shouldn't have, it was going to be one of those students. So I really do think they did the right thing here, and I think they played it the right way. At the end of May, the state police provided the Portland Press-Herald with another update on Ashley's case. They said they had conducted 200 interviews, as well as tested and analyzed hair and bodily fluids, fingernails, fingerprints, scraps of carpet, upholstery, clothing, linens, and many other items. But unfortunately, they still were not at a point where they could reach the quote standards of probable cause for an arrest on any one particular person. Now I'm going to hold off till the end during my perspective to weigh in on what I just said, but I but again, I want you to make note of what I just relayed to you as far as what was what was tested. Um, the same way I asked you to make note of what was found in Daniel's car. And we're, so we'll come back to all of this at the end during my perspective. Now, the police wouldn't comment on what the evidence testing had revealed or if anyone in the Sanborn home was a suspect. They would only say that they were, quote, unable to place Ashley alive outside the Sanborn residence. And there were people who had, quote, direct, solid knowledge of what happened to her. In November, the Alettes told the media that they were hearing rumors that people knew what happened to Ashley, but they were scared to tell the police. Bob and Lee said because of this, they were going to accept anonymous tips. Anyone with information could call their realty office during business hours. They also doubled the reward for information, bringing the total to $20,000. 
By the one-year anniversary of Ashley's murder in February of 2000, the people with helpful information had yet to come forward. The state police told the Portland Herald Press that they continued to actively investigate Ashley's case, which they described as being, quote, very solvable. They were just lacking the probable cause to make an arrest and the evidence to prove their case. The Olets also spoke to the press about the loss of their daughter and how things weren't any easier a year later. They were actively grieving Ashley's death while also trying to give their younger daughter as normal of a life as possible. Months later, the police revealed a possible connection between Ashley's murder and the May 1999 disappearance of 21-year-old college student Angel Torres, also known as Tony. On May 21st, just a few months after Ashley was murdered, Tony went to a party at a friend's house in Bitterford, a town bordering Saco. Multiple people were there, including Jay Carney, a close friend of the Sanborn brothers. At around 2 a.m., Tony and Jay left the party to go to the store on the corner. A short time later, Jay returned to the apartment. He was, quote, upset and disheveled. Tony wasn't with Jay, and he was never seen again. Three days later, Tony was reported missing. When police spoke with Jay, he said the last time he saw Tony was when he left him at the store. He claimed that Tony told him he was getting a ride to his parents' house or to a place in New Hampshire. He said a man in a red truck was going to drive him. Jay told the police he never saw Tony after that. Tony's parents told True Crime Daily that they don't believe their son got a ride in the middle of the night. They are convinced that he was murdered, possibly because he knew who killed Ashley Olette. They said that in March of 1999, one month after Ashley was killed and two months before Tony went missing, Tony was sitting at home with his parents when the story about Ashley popped up on the news. Tony immediately told his parents that he had hung out with Ashley and knew the people that killed her. Tony's father explained to True Crime Daily, quote, He didn't tell us who, but he said he knows who did it, and he said it in a way that he left no doubt. After hearing that Tony knew who killed Ashley, his father told him that he had two choices, go to the police with the information or keep his mouth shut. Tony chose not to go to the police, a decision his parents now regret. Now, the state police have never officially confirmed any connection between the two cases. However, they have stated it's likely that Tony is dead and Jay has more information than he shared. Unfortunately, Jay Carney has since passed away. Tony's body has never been recovered and his disappearance is still unsolved. In February of 2001, Ashley's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Sanborns. They said that Mariel and Ed should have contacted the Olets when Ashley showed up at their house and asked to stay the night. They also shouldn't have let her sleep outside the room of two sexually active older boys. The Olets said they didn't want money from the Sanborns, they just wanted answers. They said, quote, We feel Ashley would be alive had the Sanborns acted like any good parent would have. They alleged that Daniel assaulted Ashley and killed her inside the Sanborn home. The lawsuit also noted that the Sanborns never reached out to the Olets after Ashley's murder. There was zero communication. In response to the lawsuit, Daniel denied the allegations, and the Sanborns said they shouldn't have been expected to call the Olets when Ashley showed up at their house. Then in May, just a few months after the lawsuit was filed, Bob suddenly passed away from a heart attack. Many thought the stress had taken its toll, as he was only 49 years old and he didn't have a history of heart problems. Now a judge ended up dismissing the lawsuit. No official reason has been given, but according to the Sanborns' attorney, the two families resolved the case outside of court. So back to this lawsuit real quick, a judge dismissed it. 
And the official reason that was given, according to the Sanborns attorney, was that the two families resolved the case outside of the court. I don't have any further information on it. This this completely baffles me. I don't know what type of agreement um, they could have came to. If if the if Ashley's families wanted answers, you want to keep the pressure on them. You want to depose as many people as you can. And if they're not going for money, which I don't think they were, there couldn't have been some financial agreement. I don't I don't see how that would have benefited the case itself. So to be honest with you, as far as this is concerned, as far as it being dismissed, your guess is as good as mine. We may never know. Now, by February of 2003, it had been four years since Ashley was murdered. Police gave an update stating that while tips continued to trickle in, they still didn't have enough evidence to name a suspect or make an arrest. Lise told the media that although her husband was gone, she wasn't going to give up fighting for answers. She said, quote, I always have my eyes and ears open. I am always looking for opportunities to bring the case up again. As the years passed, less and less movement was made in Ashley's case. February 2019 brought the 20th anniversary of Ashley's murder. The Maine State Police revealed to the Portland Press-Herald that they have an idea of what happened to Ashley. However, they don't have enough evidence to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt. The police said detectives had identified some, quote, persons of interest but they weren't able to nail it down to one specific suspect. They were looking at a, quote, very small number of people who were responsible for doing this. It could have been just one person, or there could have been more than one. They weren't sure. The police added that based on the fact that Ashley was strangled, the killer was, quote, obviously quite intimate in their relations with Ashley, whether it was an acquaintance or deeper than that. Lise also spoke to the Herald about how she was doing two decades later. She said anniversaries are really difficult and she avoids thinking about what Ashley might be doing if she were still alive. It's just too painful to think about. She explained, quote, when this time of year comes around, it puts a hole in your heart. It's a piece that's missing. There's no time limit on grieving, but I have my faith and I have hope. As part of the 20th anniversary special, the Herald provided an update on the Sanborn brothers. Following the murder of Ashley, both Stephen and Daniel were in and out of trouble with authorities. Daniel had convictions for assault, theft, drug possession, drug trafficking, and federal counterfeiting. While Stephen had convictions for driving under the influence, drug possession, endangering the welfare of a child, theft, and assault. When they weren't in prison, the brothers lived with their parents in the same home on Mast Hill Road. The last update in Ashley's case comes from earlier this year. The Maine State Police updated the public, stating that despite a, quote, vigorous investigation, Ashley's murder remains unsolved. They again asked the public to come forward with any information on her case. All right, so I have a lot to say here, and I'm going to try to consolidate it all because the way my head goes, I kind of jumble around and it, and it makes sense to me. But sometimes when I say it out loud and I watch these back, it doesn't. It doesn't sound as good, but we're going to try. So um, there's a couple things I'll hit on quick and then other things I'll dive in a little deeper. So first off, uh, the condom that was found at the house, as well as some of the other items that would suggest sexual activity. I was actually talking to uh, Haley about this a little earlier, and it's one of those things where I don't know if it means a lot, to be honest with you. It's one of those things where you have these young men there and 
there's been times when I've searched a house and found hundreds of condoms under the bed, you know, or around the house. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're tied to a specific crime. But even with that being the case, I don't really think it matters for what we're trying to figure out here. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Let's go back real quick to the account from Mariel where she says she sees Daniel around 1245 getting a soda for Ashley. This is probably true, right? I usually see with interrogations and interviews where the offenders or people involved will try to pull on as much truth as they can because it's easier to, to, to remember that. And it's also easier for multiple parties to say that same thing, right? It's a trivial piece of it. Uh, but it but it gives some authenticity, it gives some credibility to the person delivering it to you. So I do think there's probably some truth to that. And it's important because if it happened around 1245, 1 o'clock, that's where you get your window, right? Where it's like 1 a.m. to a little bit before 4 a.m. when Ashley is found dead. So very, very small window when you think about it. And I want to talk about the whole reason behind going to the Sanborns house in the first place. Now, listen, I'm not a woman, but I was a teen at one point. And maybe some of you in the comments for all the women that are watching this can can kind of, you know, weigh in on this and elaborate on it. But for me, what it sounds like is Ashley had a sexual relationship with Stephen in the past, Stephen Sanborn. And clearly from what we've heard from Aaliyah, she wanted to go see Stephen that night. That was her whole reason for, for leaving the party. She wanted to see Stephen. And she went to great lengths to see him. She went to the house, no one answered. She went to a payphone, made a, made a call, spoke to his friend Chris, and then still went to the house at 12:30 knocking on the back door. This appears to be a determined young woman and she was going to see Steven one way or another. So, I pose this question to you. She goes through all that trouble to see this one particular individual. And yet once she's inside, she doesn't go the extra step to open his door and say hello and wake him up? Was that where she drew the line? Oh, you know what? I'm willing to knock on the door. I'm willing to call the house. I'm willing to go back to the house and bang on the door again. But, you know, I'm not going to go into his room and wake him up. That's that's where I that's where I stop. I don't know. I don't believe that. I think that once she got into that home, no matter what happened that night, she was at some point going to go in and see Steven, even if it meant waking him up. And you have to remember that this whole story about being kicked out of her home because she got in a fight with her parents, it wasn't true. It was it was just for Muriel so she could spend the night. And again, why would she want to do that? As she told Aaliyah, she wanted to see Steven. Now, something else that I thought was important for the story is where this all ties in. Where was everybody located? And we weren't able to get the exact address of Aaliyah. But what we do know is that Ashley lived approximately one mile away from her home. And... Ashley also lived approximately 10 miles away from the Sanborn home. So I think it's reasonable to say that more than likely the Sanborn home was approximately nine or 10 miles away from Aaliyah's home. Well, why is that important? Let's think about the two different scenarios here, the two different theories. The first theory is that Ashley's at the house. Everything goes down the way the Sanborns say they went, it went down and for some reason, she decides in the middle of the night to get up and try to walk to Aaliyah's house. Now, mind you, it's the middle of the night. It's cold. She doesn't have a jacket. And we're looking at approximately nine miles away in the middle of the night. Very unlikely. I just don't see it happening. And the other thing to consider here 
is if she was making that trek from the Sanborn home to Aaliyah's house, as you've probably seen throughout this episode, there's a map. There's a, there's a pretty direct route to it. Where Ashley was found, it was completely out of the way. Yes, it was five miles from the Sanborn home, but it wouldn't have been on the, the path to get to Aaliyah's home. So it's very unlikely that's what happened here. It doesn't make sense that she would do it. And if she was found while walking and something went down immediately, more than likely her body would have been found somewhere along the route to Aaliyah's home, which leaves the only other plausible scenario here. And that's that Ashley was killed inside the Sanborn home. Why she was killed, we may never know. But we can throw out a couple theories here, and some of them have already been mentioned in this episode. First off, if out of the three individuals that we're considering here, Chris, Stephen, and Daniel, I would argue that Stephen's the, out of the three, he's the most unlikely. Why? As I just said about five minutes ago, Ashley wanted to see him. And Ashley and Stephen had been sexually active in the past. And more than likely, if he wanted to be sexually active that night with Ashley, it probably would have happened. I don't think there would have been an issue there. So you have to ask yourself, if they consensually had sex with each other, what would be the reason for killing her? They've had sex before. There was no issues. Why would he feel the need to, to murder her? What would he, be, what would he want to stop from happening? It doesn't, it doesn't really add up for me. Now with Chris and Steven, there's a potentially different scenario there. Chris, it's a little bit harder. So we'll start with him first as far as how it could have went down. You know, if Steven's not involved and Chris was sleeping in the room with Steven, more than likely Steven would have heard something if Chris killed Ashley. So let's, let's remove him from that equation for right now. That leaves you with Daniel. Here's the scenario that I see could potentially playing out. Ashley comes in. Stephen and Chris are actually sleeping. The only ones up at this time are Daniel and Muriel. Muriel goes back to bed. Daniel and Ashley are downstairs talking. Ashley asks Daniel to get her a soda. He goes upstairs. He gets the soda. That's when Muriel sees him. Daniel goes back downstairs. They're hanging out in his room. And at one point, Daniel makes a move on Ashley. And although she tells him no, and she likes her, his brother, and he's in the other room, Daniel doesn't acknowledge it. And he continues to do what he's doing, and he sexually assaults her. And after the assault takes place, he can see that Ashley's visibly upset. She's concerned about what just happened, and she, she may even express those concerns and be very upset with him and tell him that. And he realizes that if she tells anyone, he's in a lot of trouble. So at that point, he makes a decision to kill her. And as we know from the autopsy report, he strangles her. She's unable to put up much of a fight. And maybe nobody even hears what's going on because it's, it's over in seconds. Now, what happens next? Your guess is as good as mine. If Daniel did kill her, did he go and tell Stephen? Did he go and tell Chris? Did he tell his parents? Or did he remove her from the home on, her, on his own and dump her body on the road? That's possible. It's also possible that everyone in that house knew exactly what happened. Again, there's no evidence to suggest either way. They can't even pinpoint it on one particular person, never mind how many people may have been involved. And they've said that multiple times in some of the statements that they've released to the public. So why are we in the position we are now and where can we go from here? Well, 
as I told you guys, make note of what I said earlier, the police have said multiple times that they've narrowed it down to a few people. I would imagine those people are Chris, Stephen, and Daniel. And although they believe that one of those individuals are responsible for her death or maybe multiple individuals, it's not enough to just know it was one of three people, right? You have to know definitively who's responsible and you have to be able to support that opinion with actual evidence. And in this case, it appears they have some, but just not enough to specifically identify that person. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's what they've come out and said publicly. That's We know that's the issue here. So why is that? And what can we do about it? Well, I think they do have some evidence. I feel like they probably have some ejaculate, which is why they're doing DNA testing and the testing of hairs and saliva and all that stuff. They have to have something to compare it to, right? So I would think that they had found something on Ashley's body that maybe they feel could help identify one specific person, which brings me back to Daniel's car, which I had told you to, to know earlier. There were items found in that vehicle, and maybe it's not something that can specifically tie to Daniel, but what if they have something, and I would hope they would have already done this if they did, but a hair or, or something specific to Daniel's car, like the grass itself, I don't think that Ashley was in a grassy field at some point before her death. It's my opinion that when Ashley was placed inside Daniel's car, she was put in a position where the, the grass from inside the vehicle transferred onto her body. It could be tough with just that to say, hey, it was Daniel's car. But if you have one other thing that was found on her and in the car, whether that's a hair, a fingernail, whatever it might be, maybe it's enough to say, hey, we have enough evidence here to prove that Daniel's vehicle was used to transport her body. We also know that Daniel was the last person to see her alive. We also know that Daniel has lied to the police on multiple occasions. We feel that based on the totality of the circumstances, we have a circumstantial case that suggests Daniel Sanborn killed Ashley Olette. Is it the strongest case I've ever heard of? No, but it's been 20 years. If you're going to take the shot, you have to do it now. And I really do feel that like that might be our last option at this point, because with the advancements in DNA that we have now between the science and the technology, if they had something that they could extract some type of DNA from and create a, a sequence out of it, they would have done it, I would think, at this point, And they haven't. So whatever they have from a DNA standpoint is probably not enough. So you're going to have to use the environmental evidence, the things found in the vehicle, tie them to the things found on Ashley build the case around Daniel as far as him being the last person with her and obviously the the levels of deception that he put in place to remove himself from the situation and you go with it and you see what happens and you and you obviously let least know what you're doing and come to an agreement that whatever happens you can live with the results now just a quick recap Ashley was found dead on February 10th 1999 on Pine Point Road in Saco Maine her cause of death was strangulation. If you have any information about the murder of Ashley Olette or the disappearance of Tony Torres, please call the Maine State Police at 207-624-7076. Just a reminder, there's a $20,000 reward for both cases. And finally, I want to send my thoughts to Lise and the rest of Ashley's family, including her younger sister. Uh, I know it can't be easy for you to hear or see this, but I hope I covered it in a way 
that um, you guys approve. And uh, I just want you to know that our entire community is thinking of you. And I hope that they go out and they support you and the rest of your family. And that's what I'm going to leave you with tonight. If you'd like to support Ashley's family, please consider liking their Facebook page, Remembering Ashley E. Ouellette. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. As always, I want to thank you guys for being here. If you made it to the end of the video, please weigh in in the comments below. Let me know what you think of this investigation. Do you think it's pretty cut and dry what happened, or do you think something else may have happened? Love to hear your thoughts on it. As always, stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon.